Welcome to California Groundbreakers, a place that sets trends, starts movements, and shakes up how things are done around the world. We're inviting interesting people doing innovative things to sit down and talk with us about how they're asking and answering the big questions facing all Californians. Our goal is to inspire change across the state, one conversation at a time. This time, we're taking a look at the Central Valley. It is often called America's Salad Bowl and the world's breadbasket. It is definitely the reason why Sacramento can brand itself as the farm to fork capital. But right now, more than ever, it is ground zero for federal state clashes over immigration issues. That's leading to a lot of fear, turmoil, and changes in the Central Valley, to the towns, the farms, the workforce, and the food that's being grown and raised there. No matter where you live in California, all of this will affect the food you eat and probably how much you pay for it. Join us as we take a close look at the farm in our farm to fork efforts. We're in the auditorium at the Clara Center for Performing Arts with three people, Chefs Santana Diaz, Farmer Bruce Rominger, and community activist Letty Valencia. They give us an on-the-ground look at what's going on in the Central Valley, how it's affecting our food supply, why we should care, and how we can help. Welcome to California Groundbreakers. I'm Vanessa Richardson. I'm the Executive Director. We're a civic engagement organization based in Sacramento, and we're focused on innovators doing groundbreaking things around the state of California. And we make them cocktail conversations, um, and the goal is to make dry, quote unquote, tough topics more relevant, more relatable, and more interesting uh, to people who live in California. And this is a food for thought event, which we do monthly. It's a monthly discussion and conversation uh, with people who are shaking up food and drink all over California through farms that they own, restaurants they own, bars, breweries, wineries, distilleries, and other places where we get our food and drink grown and raised. So last month we had a great sold out event on chefs in the area. Uh, so that was the, the, the fork in the farm to fork uh, scene in, in Sacramento that we market and, and praise so much. And right now we're gonna be looking at the farms and particularly the richest farming area in the US, I believe, maybe even the world, that's the Central Valley, which Sacramento is located in. And it seems to be in turmoil right now. Obviously there's immigration gridlock in Washington, DC and uh, right now there's also clashes between California and the feds on how immigration issues should be handled. And then there's the uh, immigration raids by ICE that are happening all over California. And this is affecting the Central Valley very much uh, because it's affecting the people who work on the farms, uh, the people who hire them, um, the towns and cities that they live in, and eventually it will affect, if it hasn't already, us, the California residents who buy and eat the food that's grown in the Central Valley. So this is, is gonna be a conversation, probably will only scratch the surface of what's happening, but it's just an idea to, you know, what's happening now, what to expect on, on various levels, and how also, very importantly, how food lovers like you and I can help the people who, who grow and raise and bring us uh, our food. So I just wanted to give special thanks to a few people who helped to make this event possible. Uh, Jay Swanson, who runs uh, the auditorium at Clara, where we are holding this event. Um, I also want to give a special thanks to Matt Kennedy, who runs the trade and helped with supplies. And I also wanted to thank the people who provided us the food and drink. There's a Central Valley aspect 
uh, to the, the things that we have on the counter there. Uh, the, we've, we're having vegetable pakoras and samosas from Punjabi Daba in Dixon, which is right down the road from Sacramento. And I thought it was interesting. Uh, we could have had Mexican food. That seems to be what we would have. But I remember that there's other populations that have a really big impact uh, in agriculture in the Central Valley and have for uh, decades, if not centuries. And one of them is the Sikh population, which um, is from India, and they came over to the to the Central Valley and, and really uh, helped shape agriculture. And there is a big Sikh population, maybe a lot of you know, in Yuba, Yuba City, they have a big, one of the biggest, if not the biggest outside India, uh, Sikh parade festival in November. So Punjabi Daba is uh, um, this very well-known restaurant right outside Dixon that donated the pakoras and samosas. So I wanted to say thanks to them. I want to say thanks to Frank Fat. That's a very famous restaurant here in Sacramento. They gave us our door prizes, which we will raffle off at the end of the of, of this event. And uh, again, I guess in honor of uh, Chinese immigrants who are coming here to California since the 1860s and helped build the Transcontinental Railroad. Um, really, they were experienced farmers, so they helped shape the the uh, fruit and vegetable and wine industries here from for for decades. Um, and they also, both of these populations had that kind of anti-immigration experience that is still going on today, as we see. And then finally, Roostaller Beer, uh, J.E. Pano, who runs uh, Roostaller Beer in Sacramento and grows his own hops, also in Dixon. If you drive down Highway 80, you'll see his hop farm right when you pass UC Davis. All those hops there go into the beer that we're drinking today. So I want to thanks to them. I also want to say thanks to the panelists who have drove here from Fresno, from Winters, um, for making the long drives, especially in this day of hail and thunder and heart pouring rain. And finally, to you, the audience, for, for coming out here on a cold, rainy night. So I want to say uh, to for the podcast, this is going to be about a 45 minute, maybe an hour discussion. I'll be asking questions first, and then we're going to go to the mic and have audience ask questions, and then door prize drawings. So, uh, introductions. I don't do them. I have the panelists introduce themselves since they know themselves the best. But I always like to ask, besides their name and and briefly their role and organization, what they're doing now. I always like to ask a personal question uh, about them, so we know a little bit about you as people besides panelists. And the question tonight I have is, uh, a favorite place of yours in the Central Valley, the San Joaquin Valley, that you love um, and that you recommend others go to, to really get a sense of the area, the, the valley, a restaurant, a park, an underrated destination that you enjoy and you think others should know about too. So I'm gonna start with the gentleman on my right. Thank you, Vanessa. My name is Bruce Rominger, and I'm a farmer over in Winters. And I'm what some people would call a large corporate farmer, even though our corporation only has two shareholders. So we're a family farm. My brother and I are the owners of this farm. And we have been farming here in California for a long time. Uh, my family got here, German and Irish immigrants primarily in the 1800s, clear from the gold rush era. And it's interesting because I, 
I hear farmers kind of that look like me complain sometimes that the Hispanic population, they have these workers that have been here 30 years and haven't spoke English. And then I remember back to think that my family was still speaking German at home 40 years after they got here also. So it's natural that the, the people react that way. But uh, anyway, a, a variety of Central Valley kind of row crops and orchard crops, uh, pretty diversified farm. And I'm not sure what to say about Vanessa's question where my favorite place is. Um, there are some really nice restaurants and winters you should come to. It's, it's a happening downtown right now. It's a beautiful place and it's a beautiful drive this time of year with uh, the green grass going up to Lake Berryessa. So that, that's where I like to be. I did, I did ask, I do want to know, Bruce, do you hang out at the, um, what's the, is it the Buckhorn, the hotel with the, the, that great bar? I always walk by and never gone in. Do you hang out there? Yeah, no, I don't hang out there because if you go to the Buckhorn nowadays, you don't see anybody from Winters. I, I, I have coffee in the morning with some other people there at, at one of the little uh, Berryessa Sporting Goods, um, but we go to various places. There are several nice restaurants, and, and uh, the Buckhorn is what made Winters famous, um, and now there's Buckhorn Grill and Tri-Tip Grills by the same owner all over the place. Um, but anyway, there's other places that are wonderful to go to in winters too. Okay, my name is Santana Diaz. Uh, I'm the executive chef of UC Davis uh, Medical Center, UC Davis Health. Uh, formerly uh, coming uh, most recently from Golden One Center and then Levi Stadium. Uh, really important to support the farming community. Um, my role uh, with this discussion, I'm coming from, I'm the first generation born here uh, with my family coming from Mexico, and then my father's family coming from uh, Puerto Rico. Grew up in Yuba City, about an hour north of here. Uh, my uncle is a farmer, uh, so he ran a ranch right off of Riego Road, off 99. Um, so growing up and helping, uh, running on you know, the mill, things of that nature is, uh, is interesting. Uh, for my experience growing up and then being in the restaurant industry from a dishwasher at the age of 15 uh, all the way up to what I'm doing now. Uh, there's a reason why I'm involved with the, the medical center. Uh, it's the largest uh, kitchen provider in the county of Sacramento. And so it has the largest impact uh, 365 days a year. Uh, not never closes. We do about 6,500 to 7,500 meals a day. Um, so that impact for farmers and our agricultural programs uh, that we can support and anchor is very important. And so what I'm trying to do with that is uh, regarding forecasting, which affects farmers like Bruce. And, uh, but at the same time, the topic we're going to be speaking about uh, can put that, a lot of that in jeopardy when it comes to the cost impact to the consumer uh, and, and what that means. Um, so it doesn't matter what the forecasting that I do and how to, that can actually lower the pricing to you, the consumer, if uh, we can't get past this important topic. And I'll say that uh, my, one of my favorite places is some, uh, it's family-owned place, Italian eatery off of 99 on your way to Live Oak called Pasquini's. Uh, Pasquini's is a family-owned restaurant uh, by the McKellys. Uh, Angelo, McKelly, and I have known each other since kindergarten. Uh, so uh, they redid uh, the, the restaurant there, and so, uh, Great uh, farmers as well, the McKellys and the Nevis family. So, um, you know, just always been involved with agriculture. So. 
Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Leti Valencia. I'm a community organizer with Faith in the Valley Fresno. Uh, so we're a regional organization in the San Joaquin Valley, part of the Central Valley, but a little bit south of here with uh, five chapters, one in Stockton, um, one in Modesto, one in Merced, Fresno, and Bakersfield. And we work, we're a faith-based organization that works on racial and economic justice for the families of the Central Valley, but we work on some statewide and, and um, national issues as well. Well, um, I'm from Winton, California, which is a small town in Merced County. And um, many times when I when I graduated from college and I was applying for jobs, they said, you know, you should put Merced, you should put somebody else's address on your resume because most people think nothing good can come from Winton. So. Go to Winton. There is a great new restaurant called Milindo Apatzingan, which has really amazing burritos. And on Sundays, they have birria uh, with fresh homemade tortillas. So I highly recommend it. And um, I hope you can go to Winton one day. Thank you. So I want to ask each of you individually, one at a time, questions about what, what you're seeing now. I guess what has changed in the past say five, 10 years, um, what, yeah, what's going, what's going on? Because there's been so much in the past decade, obviously, uh, in California, the Great Recession and the drought, and now uh, a federal crackdown on immigration. So Bruce, I wanna start with you. You know, you're growing up in the Central Valley experience, and, and then I wanted to ask, because you grow so many crops, um, I was curious to see if that has changed in the past few years because of the recession, the drought, and and what's going on now, or are, are those factors? I was just curious about your decision about growing crops and how that's uh, been changing, if in, at all. Well, I think a lot of people need to understand that agriculture has always been a very dynamic industry. If you go back even 15 years before the sort of turmoil that Vanessa's talking about, I would tell people even then, if I farmed and grew the crops my dad did, I'd be broke today. We are constantly evolving. My grandfather started with a grain and sheep operation. My dad and uncle started with some sugar beets and some honeydew melons and some alfalfa. We don't have any of those anymore. We do grow some wheat as a rotation crop, but now it's processing tomatoes, it's sunflowers. We do grow some corn, but now we're getting into orchards. So it is a constant evolution. If you are not changing, you are gonna get run over. This is a very, very competitive industry. And people from the outside look at an operation like my brother and I have and say, oh, it's a big operation. Wow, that must be wonderful. You guys making a lot of money. You're doing just wonderful. It's a struggle every year. We are looking at these markets you know, you ask about what's changed in the last 15 years. Every single year, we decide what to grow again. Now, when we have some permanent crops, then you've made that decision for quite a while, and that has its own risks when you have a lot of money invested in a permanent crop. But we are looking at markets. We're looking at what our soils are fit to grow, what our climate grows. There's always somebody around trying a new crop. Do we want to try that crop? Boy, it looks good, but you know, it always looks better on somebody else's field. Then you try and do it yourself. It's not so easy. So, you know, people have to understand that it's very dynamic. You have to be adaptable. You have to look every single year at your bottom line 
and make sure things work because nobody really cares in this society whether I'm in business next year or not. Because if I'm not, some other farmer will be farming my ground. And so there isn't a safety net really for agriculture. And I'm sure Santana sees that with the farmers he deals with. If you're not on top of things, if you're not right there all the time watching everything, you're gonna get run over. So it's, it's interesting, it's challenging, it's never boring, but it's not a set formula that we do this every year, because every year it's different. So I'm curious about that because California obviously is a big state. We've got 30 million people here, but then we're the breadbasket for the world. So I guess in terms of your customer breakdown, who are you, who are your fruits and vegetables going to? Are they, is it, is California a big part of that? Or are you growing for China, the rest of the U.S.? Like what, what's the breakdown, I guess, of who, who gets your crops when they're done? Well, we don't directly retail anything. There's nothing going out there with my name on it, on a label anywhere. So we're contracting with various processors. With seed companies, we have grown with three or four different seed companies. These are international companies. These are the big ones, the Seminists, the Bayers, the Nunums, people like this that have a presence in Yolo County in the Central Valley. And we'll, they'll contract with us and many other growers for sunflowers. We're growing some onion seed right now. Our, Probably our main crop is processing tomatoes. We grow with three or four different processors every year. The Campbell Soup plant right down the road in Dixon, they used to have one here on Franklin Boulevard, is one of my customers. I contract with them every year. Pacific Coast producers in Woodland, Stanislaus Food Products in Modesto are where I grow my tomatoes. They all have different markets. The Campbell stuff, most of those are primarily domestic, but there are a lot of tomatoes. 25 to 30% of the processing tomatoes in California that do go overseas. And so that's a very important market. And, the, and so what we grow, primarily we don't control where it goes. And our rice goes to Farmers Rice Cooperative, which is here in West Sacramento. Some of that is shipped overseas, most of it is, stays domestic. So we're in the business of growing something that we like to think is a very high quality product that we're forced, because we are in international markets. Most of the food in the United States is really dealing with international competition. And if we didn't ship some of our food overseas out of the United States, our prices would plummet. I mean, we, we grow way more than we can eat in this country. So we're really dependent on. And that's one of the, the commodities in this country that we have a trade surplus with the rest of the world is agricultural products. And I thought it was interesting, speaking of tomatoes, uh, when I was doing a little research on, on Bruce and Roman, your brother's farms, there is a, I think he's still a food columnist for the New York Times, but he's definitely famous because he wrote a cookbook called How to Eat Everything, Mark Bittman, who everyone I know has that cookbook. But he visited your farm, I guess, back in 2013, and he wrote a column about he, the, the farm was run very well, and he tried their tomatoes that I guess were headed towards one of the factories for sauce or paste and said, these tomatoes are better than anything I can find in my in my uh, supermarket. So the t even the tomatoes going on the conveyor belt were really good. So I guess good job, Bruce. <laughs> so Santana, I wanted to ask you, you know, you had mentioned how you're doing the, the local connection between the food that you're preparing and, and serving here in Sacramento and, and the farmers and ranchers out in Central Valley. But you're, you know, you're going to seeing an impact if you haven't already 
you're expecting to uh, with current events. So I guess with what's, what's the plan in terms of your farm to fork efforts and what are you seeing right now that, that may be different than a few years ago, um, if anything, in terms of social, political, economic change? Well, it's interesting that, uh, you know, the, the, the slogan, the statement farm to fork, um, you know, what we as chefs are trying to do in this, uh, city, this town, uh, as we grow in this region, um, it's, it's, it's deeper than just the one connection, say reaching out to Bruce and, you know, saying, okay, I'm going to buy his tomatoes. Um, you know, on large scale production, you know, say whether sports, or now say at the medical center, um, what I'm trying to do is forecast enough to give the farmer the upper hand uh, with commodity uh, pricing. What that means is, and it hasn't to my knowledge been done on the, on the scale that we're trying to get to, uh, and I'm gonna answer the question of how this is gonna affect things down the road. The whole point is, you go into your grocery store and the problem is we've gotten so detached from seasons because the tomatoes are in the same section of the produce aisle every time you go to the grocery store. It doesn't matter if they're in season or not. They're just coming from Chile or Mexico or whatever, um, you know, at certain times of the year. And then you wonder, oh, why do they not taste like anything? Well, they're not in season. <laughs> so uh, they're coming across on a boat somewhere. And so anyways, this focus of forecasting, if I can forecast out six, eight, months, maybe a year out, and say to Bruce, hey, I'm going to use this volume of tomatoes, or I'm going to use this volume of stone fruit. Can you commit that weight, you know, say it's 6,000 pounds for X amount of time, you know, for these two months of the year, can you provide that? It helps take the risk out of the farmer's hands of and I don't even understand all of the, the contracts they deal with with grocery stores and things and why, what that risk is and the buyback of what goes bad. I'm not, that's not my side. What I'm trying to do is give them a guarantee without a contract of saying if they can't produce it because we are subjected to weather and all these other things that we can't control. So all I'm trying to do is provide the farmer with, hey, this is what I need. Can you do it? And then at the, that time, maybe that pricing comes down because a farm to fork, a true farm to fork program is more expensive, uh, regardless of what you say or may think or may have read. Uh, the last farm to fork program, um, my last venue that I just came from, you know, on average cost about $400,000 more a year than if we just bought commodity lettuce and tomatoes and everything from some packer brand of some broadliner, the, you know, food program, right? But that's what all these, you know, a lot of places are doing is just going for the cheaper, you know, food product. And then they pass that on to you, the consumer. Uh, but that has no benefit to our region or to the Central Valley really at all. Uh, so and that doesn't benefit Bruce here, you know, at, at the same time. So if we can, what I'm trying to do is forecast to get that dollar amount of that farm to fork program to be more reasonable uh, that way as it comes to a plate cost, uh, a meal uh, that you may have at a restaurant here in town, uh, or uh, hopefully you're not coming to what I, what I call my uh, patient hotel over there, you know, uh, hopefully it's for, for good reasons, but uh, ultimately, you know, it's just to, to, to provide that better product, 
but with these other issues that are coming about here with labor and you know with ICE and and what's happening is we're changing that the market's going to change whether it's the minimum wage going up or all all these benefits all these things whether it's a, a machine that replaces the workers that are afraid to you know get deported now you're you're not making more jobs you're actually taking more jobs away so if we just replace them with machines fine that's what the farmer needs because the farmer has invested all this time and money and energy into a product that now nobody can pick or harvest that's a problem for the farmer now too right so and then who's going to pay for those machines right well it's going to be coming down to to you and i right and and regardless of it you know it's a good thing it's you know it's efficient um but you know somehow something in this you know the whole goal was to make a farm to fork program more affordable to the consumer benefit our region keep the money within our our area and uh you know just try to help get it done so i think that the, obviously, there's a lot that you have in common. You three grew up in, uh, in the Central Valley and farm and, and food and, and people. For you, Letty, I want to ask about the people that you're working with. So I, I, you grew up in Winton, and I wanted to, to, you to describe, I guess, your, your work for Faith in the Valley. And um, in Fresno County, what, I wanted you to start off the conversation of what are you seeing, hearing, listening to now in terms of people who work in the ag industry in Fresno and, and the central San Joaquin Valley. What is different now than a year ago, two years ago? Um, what is, what's happening? So I've been with uh, Faith in the Valley for two years now and in the last year and a half year, um, things have changed a whole lot. My my work is around healthy housing, around substandard housing, um, and now I've had to become an immigration expert as best as I can because of the situation going on with this new administration. Um, and just to make it really, really real today, I'm, I'm so grateful and happy to be here. And in the last 24 hours, we received over 25 rapid response calls to our rapid response network. So last March, um, because of this new administration and the heightened fear in our communities, we decided to create what we call a rapid response hotline, which is literally a phone number that we've given out in our communities, in our, in our churches, in our congregations, um, to folks in case of an emergency, whether it be a racial attack, um, a, a a race-related crime or an immigration um, emergency. So an ICE check-in, raids, which was what we thought we needed at the time. Right now, what we've seen, we've, we haven't seen many raids, many real raids where they're going out in the fields or, or anything like that. What we've seen is people getting picked up from their homes. Uh, yesterday, six people were picked up in Merced County on a Sunday morning between 6 and 8 a.m., four of them at a Circle K gas station they, were, they went in to go get their coffee. There was ICE agents dressed as civilians outside. They picked up four of them out of the five that were there. One of them kept saying, I have my green, my green card. I'm a legal permanent resident. Um, it was obviously racially profiled. Um, they bullied him a little bit and, and, and ended up leaving him, but they detained the other four. The other two people that were picked up were picked up out of a home at around 8 a.m. Uh, the ICE agents had an M4 assault rifle um, that they were that they were pointing. They were saying they were the police. They were asking them to come out. And we've done numerous know your rights training where we're teaching people not to answer the door, not to 
sign anything and to stay silent. But in a situation where your 12-year-old kid is, is hiding in a bedroom, you're going to open the door. Um, and because of that, people were taken. Today, it seems um, that you know, we've gotten over a dozen, a dozen people confirmed just on a rapid response hotline. So how many people have actually been picked up? Who knows? But what that does is it creates mass panic in the community. People don't want to go to work. People don't want to go outside. People don't want to go to the grocery store. They're not going out to restaurants. They're not going out and shopping like they used to. I know a family that, you know, needs a new stove and doesn't want to buy a new stove because they don't know if they're going to be here tomorrow. So it's, it's a, it has a huge impact on our economy, but beyond that, beyond how much it's gonna cost at a restaurant when we go out to eat next week, these are families, these are parents, these are kids that are gonna be destroyed, that are getting destroyed right now as we speak. And so back to you, Bruce, you know, with your role as a farmer, as an employer, what are you seeing, hearing, experiencing as an employer that's different now than a year or two years ago um, in terms of immigration and, and how it's affecting the people that you employ? Well, my personal experience recently, in our area we haven't had any ICE raids that I'm aware of. I, I would have heard about them. But I have employees that are certainly concerned about what's going on. We have dreamers working for us, people that went through Winters High School, and, and they're, they're, things have looked up for them somewhat. They've been able to get some driver's licenses now. We have long, longer-term employees now that have finally got permanent status, that have been here, you know, 20 years. But there's a lot of fear out there right now, and, and it's, it makes it really, really tough um, on these people, just, you know, in their daily lives. Where are they going to be in a few weeks? What's going to go on? And they're just out there working like crazy. You know, that's what they're doing. They're working, they're supporting their families, and they're in limbo. And, you know, it's, it's not, not fair to them. It wouldn't be fair to anybody to, to treat them like that. But there's huge, even, even before our new administration, you know, the labor in California, farm labor is in tremendous turmoil. Um, it's, you know, people think that Trump is really cut off the immigrants coming in or something like that. Well, the reality is they really quit coming across the border during the Obama administration. There was a lot of crackdown that people don't realize, not here, but at the border and things tightened up. And our employees that do not have legal status here quit going back to Mexico quite a few years ago because it became dangerous, expensive, and very risky. And so they just stay here. And so the new workers coming in from Mexico that we've seen. It used to be 25 years ago, we'd have 20 or 30 knock on the door of our shop every spring. We get nobody doing that anymore. So the labor in agriculture has become very tight, regardless of what's happened in the last year, it's become very tight. And now with uh, the minimum wage legislation and the overtime legislation, you know, the minimum wage reality is that's really not going to affect us because the wages are going up just because of the shortage. The workers that are here understand that there aren't that many workers left and they're basically asking and getting higher wages. And so we're paying above the minimum wage right now. But like what what's what are you paying? Oh, I, I think the a, the average is on our ranches 12 and a half or 13 dollars an hour and we have people at uh, 18 or so and down to I think we have a couple of beginner people that are, are at minimum wage or just starting but um, 
So it's, it's variable, and we have people that have worked for us for 25 years, and some people just, you know, two or three years, some newer employees. I have a couple of employees now that are part-time students at a local junior college, and we try and be flexible for them. Hey, they can only be there on Friday and Saturday. That's fine. I have jobs for you. And try and help them out because, they, you know, they're sons primarily of farm workers, and they want to take a step above this kind of work. It's actually quite good motivation for studying when you have to go out and do some physical work on Friday and Saturday. Um, but the, the issues confronting us going forward, we had some conversations here earlier about the shortage of ag labor and the expense of ag labor in California. People don't understand that. Everybody thinks, well, $15 an hour, that's a very fair wage. Why would anybody argue against that? Well, the reality is what I grow, I'm competing with other farmers all over the world. And if I'm paying my workers $15 an hour to do the same thing that right across the border in Mexico, they're still getting 10 or $12 a day, I'm really at a competitive disadvantage. And so that's why there's a lot of, of crops in California that are very labor-intensive crops, hand-picked crops that are disappearing. You, I just read recently this last winter, there's a couple other asparagus packing sheds that have shut down in California. That business is going to Mexico, the fresh market tomatoes, the melons, many crops like that that are high labor. So what we're doing, like I said, nobody can argue against, hey, 40 hours a week should be plenty, $15 an hour is fair, but we aren't creating very many of those jobs because what I'm going to have to do, I have no choice, I'm going to have to eliminate those jobs as fast as I can to keep my farm solvent. And those jobs are going to be replaced by somebody only getting $10 an hour across the border in Mexico. Or the minimum wage, I think it's going up now, but in Arizona has been $8.25 an hour with no overtime whatsoever for ag workers. So we aren't doing them a lot of a favor. Many of my employees were quite upset by the overtime legislation because they look forward, they look ahead and say, well, if I only get to work 40 hours a week, even at $15 an hour, I'm going to earn less than I am today. And we might think, well, yeah, but look at all that leisure time. They're not thinking about that. They're thinking about paying their rent and buying their groceries. And maybe as a wealthy society, we don't like the idea that there are people doing that, but that's the reality of, of the world we live in. And it's a global economy. And we'd all be happy to pay them $15 an hour or 20 or $25 an hour, but everybody here would have to pay a lot more for food. Or would you just not buy my food and buy it from the stuff that came from Mexico? And that's the dilemma we have, because I don't control that. No farmer controls that. Yeah, I wanted to ask uh, that question about what crops are, are leaving California, the ones that we're, we're famous for, because I, I think I was reading how, yes, asparagus, it's, it's uh, so labor-intensive, and so there's fewer growth. Strawberries, I think, is another one. And I've, I think I've been reading that more farmers are planting trees, almond and walnuts, because it's easier to electronically or robotically grow them. So in terms of, um, like this is for all panelists, what are farmers you know, saying, forget this crop because we just can't afford it, and this is going to be less labor-intensive, um, more profitable because it's less work. So what are you thinking there, Santana? What are you seeing um, from your end? And, and uh, Letty, you know, from San Joaquin, what are you seeing there? So who would like to start with that? Uh, the, the, how the crops are changing in California. Santana? Well, I'll, I'll definitely mention that uh, this is really important. Um, 
you know, what, what is being said here straight from the farmer's mouth is directly going to affect any menu engineering that I can ever come up with. It doesn't matter about, you know, what next sporting arena opens up and, uh, you know, in this area, say for our beloved uh, Sac Republic and that stadium. What does it matter if uh, the volume of, say, asparagus, right, since we just brought that up, kind of goes away, right, because of this cost impact and what's happening to this region? What happens to the asparagus festival, right, uh, in Stockton? Uh, you know, all these things, you know, so when it comes to the, my menu writing, it's like it definitely changes everything. What does it matter that I forecast that I'm going to need 1,200 pounds, you know, next month, uh, you know, say for 2019 when I don't have a farmer to grow it, right? Uh, and, and even though that the stretch that I try to do is a 250-mile radius of the hospital, the medical center, the last venue is 150-mile radius of, of where we're standing or where we sit, Right. Um, but if, if the product doesn't exist, uh, what does that mean? You know, those are thoughts that we as consumers need to be really be thinking about, uh, because this farm to fork thing, I don't think it's a fad by any means. I think it's just how we should eat because, <laughs> uh, you know, we just grow or eat what we can grow and that should be kind of it. That's how we all kind of were raised on in the past. And that's how food really was. Uh, you know, it's not like we had all these barges and boats and bringing things from all over the world. You just grew what you could in the seasons that, that they grew. And then that's what was on the plates and the tables. Uh, that's all just going away. These are really big issues, you know, and it doesn't really, like I said, it, it it's unfortunate. I'm really concerned about how the menu forecasting and engineering of things really is going to be affected in the future. I mean, you may not see it next year, and you may not see it in 2020, but by 2025, this could really be different. And then you can look at, think back on these conversations and wonder, oh, why is asparagus now $5 or $6 a pound, right? Well, it's because the demand is high, and we don't have a lot of farmers growing it, and oh, wait, and then we compound it with the labor. Uh, you know, uh, and uh, when, and if we don't buy it, well, then less farmers are going to grow it anyways. So then it just goes away, right? It's really kind of a tough situation. Uh, and I have a question. I'm going to I'm going to start asking if anyone in the audience has questions. If you want to start lining up at the mic, um, it's I think it, you all you always have good questions uh, too. So, but while you wait to before my question i i um i have one about how california is official well it is a blue state but not all parts of the state are as blue as others and the central valley uh is one area where there were a lot of trump voters uh in 2016 but it also relies a lot on uh immigrants uh illegal, legal or not, for the biggest economic driver there, agriculture. So I'm just wondering for the three of you and your experience in the towns that you uh, live in, uh, your family there, how does that play out in terms of, um, you know, that there's a lot of voters there, a lot in, in ag who, who voted for Trump and support, you know, the Republican Party, but then again, the Republican Party has this stance on immigration that is affecting 
their livelihoods, uh, their jobs, the, the, the economy. Um, so what, how does that shake out in terms, because it just seems like such a juxtaposition of policy versus here's what's happening on the ground. How does that uh, play out like, with each other, Bruce? Well, I, you know, as a middle-aged white guy, I'm typical Republican, except I'm not. I'm a Democrat. But most farmers that I deal with, the people I'm around, the people I drink coffee with in the morning once in a while are Republicans. And I think what we all realize when we look at political parties is people, you know, they affiliate with something that feels good. It's their emotions that, you know, they associate with that attitude, sort of. But when, because when you start analyzing agriculture and the different political parties, most farmers know they need immigrants. So they do not agree with the national Republican positions on immigration, but that doesn't mean they're not gonna vote for them again anyway. So it's, it's, it's an emotional thing. I don't think people rationally always think it all the way through. And, and I would say that probably none of us, if we vote, we vote Republican or Democrat, probably don't agree with the politicians we elect on 100% of the things that we, you know, that, uh, that we agree with on. So it's, it's highly, uh, variable but it's it's interesting i i think you know my town of winters historically has been a very conservative small t farming town it's becoming uh more liberal it's a becoming really a bedroom community for the bay area and sacramento and the university most people get in their cars in the morning in winters and head out grand avenue and get on 505 and head south to vacaville fairfield vallejo i mean they compute all commute all the way into san francisco so it's changed winters a lot um but still, the, you know, the old people that are the farmers around there are pretty conservative. And I, I, to me, it's, it's hypocritical, a lot of the positions they take. But I may be hypocritical on some of mine, too. So. And one thing I wanted to ask you, too, because Fresno is like, it's in the heart of the, the valley and, and so much ag. But it is also a, uh, it can be a red state. A stand stand stronghold so in terms of the people that you you talk with um, in all aspects the, the the workers and the people who hire them you know how does that how does that if that balances out what's the conversation there in terms of well on one hand it's the federal stance but on the other hand this is our livelihood what what do you hear and exp and see from your from your role How am I going to say this? <laughs> you know, um, I don't. I, I agree, and I, I want to come back to one of the points that was made earlier around um, the previous administration. Obama's administration deported more immigrants than any other president had, um, and so it, it's not a new issue. What's happening is that this administration has said it's a free for all. There is no more priorities. You know, you don't have to have a felony. It's take them as they come. And I think, I, I agree that a lot of farmers don't understand what they were actually voting for. They don't understand what they were doing. And and now um, they, they hold on to the easy things like DACA, um, like these perfect students that are straight eight students that have to pass a crazy background check to even qualify for DACA. And so, you know, everybody's like, oh, well, I'm a, I'm a DACA supporter, but doesn't, doesn't actively speak out, doesn't actively um, donate to camp to political campaigns the way they do when it's around um, an e economic 
gain right they if it's not around their own economic gain or at least not as clear as as something else they're not donating to those political campaigns they're not having conversations about immigrations with politicians with congressmen right we have congressman noons in the central valley who only talks to farmers and you know he 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 won't support anything that supports the people that he represents in the central valley so um it's 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 definitely hypocritical I think there's a lack of understanding. There's um, racist roots also in the valley, for sure, probably more than anywhere in the state. And we've got city councils in places like Mendota that want to pass anti-SB 54 resolutions when 90% of the community is Latino. It, it just, it's, 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 it's ridiculous. So there always has to be a groundbreaker in the audience who is brave and bold enough to go to the microphone and ask a question to incentivize you, you'll see there is a lot of leftover beer and wine and s'mores and picosas. So whoever goes up to the mic and asks a question, you get your choice of a bottle of wine to take home, a couple of bottles of Restaller beer, um, s'mores and picosas. So keep that in mind. Ah, yes, that did it. All right, first question from the audience. I actually have a question for both of you about whether you're seeing a reaction from farmers to try to stabilize their workforce by sponsoring more um, more immigrants. So you're, you're probably seeing a lot more shifting towards crops that use less labor, but you also then will have your workers around a lot more. Um, are you finding that your cohort is sponsoring these workers and trying to stabilize their workforce? I mean, I'm sure you have people that have worked with you for, you know, 20, 30 years. Yeah, so these changes are not going to happen overnight. Like Santana said, this is going to be a slow evolutionary process. We can, we can see the, the tidal wave kind of coming, but it's going to take a long time to get here and to really have an effect. So we're not going to be mechanized completely next year and have a bunch of idle workers around. It's going to take time. We're probably going to be losing these. Had a couple of young guys that got their truck driving license here last year. You know, more power to them. It was great that they improved themselves and got to that step. Um, that's going to happen more and more. We're not replacing at the bottom end as older guys, you know, retire. So we're slowly looking at mechanized crop. Uh, Vanessa mentioned the, the tree nuts. It's very mechanized crop. It's a, it's a lucrative crop right now. I mean, those markets may change. We, in essence, have had no choice but to get into that business. We have not historically grown trees like that. But we lease quite a bit of our farmland from various different tenants. And we had landowners coming to us on ground we've farmed for a long time saying, I want you to plant trees. And if you don't want to plant trees and you don't want to get in that business, that's fine. But we're going to find somebody else to plant trees on that ranch. And so these things are, you know, they happen whether you want to or not have these things. So we're not going to end up with a surplus of employees all of a sudden. It's going to be a slow evolutionary process where we have fewer and fewer people taking care of each acre that we have, in essence. Well, and I guess I, I was more focusing on that, that you are going to have fewer people, but they also are probably going to need to know your equipment a little bit better. And so you're, gonna, you're not going to be able to rely on a contractor that kind of buffers you and, and provides you with all of this, this seasonal labor because you're going to need more consistent labor, correct? I mean, your, your trees need to be maintained by less people, but you're around. Or is that not? Yeah, no, that's, that's very true. This is a discussion we have and something we're working on, trying to improve the knowledge and the skills of our employees. And that's on us to train them correctly. Um, if they don't know how to operate that piece of equipment that we just bought that now will replace four people, 
That's for us to, to find the employee that has the capabilities to do that and train them correctly. And so, yeah, absolutely, we have to do that. You know, and this has been happening in agriculture for a long time. You know, my grandpa had 36 mules in front of his harvester and all kinds of people working around there. And, and now one employee does way, way, way more with this really expensive equipment. And so it's, it's, gonna, it's not a new thing that's happened. I mean, there's, they used to pick tomatoes by hand in this valley and you'd have 150 people filling lug boxes out in these fields back in the 1950s. Now we have one driver and you know, two people maybe sorting on that machine and we're picking, you know, hundreds and hundreds of tons a day with three people. And so, and it's gonna accelerate. We're gonna have equipment out there that doesn't even have people on it. You know, we're gonna have robots that we just program and we let them go in the field. You know, we're not gonna have any choice. That's the only way we're gonna keep up with cheap labor in other, other countries. Mm -hmm. And do you see any farmers sponsoring their labor force for, for permanent status or at least green okay. cards? That's what, I, that's what I thought you were asking. So um, I have not seen any of that at all. Um, I haven't seen any farmers sponsor employees. I haven't, I haven't seen folks, you know, step up and maybe retain, put immigration attorneys on retainer. I haven't seen them put money into legal defense funds. I haven't seen them show up to city council meetings and say, hey, somebody needs to do something about this. I have not seen that. Uh, we had an, uh, an attack uh, just a little while ago, sometime last month, uh, through ICE about I-9 audits. So a lot of local ag distribution centers and packing centers got hit with I-9 audits, which you know has happened in the past, um, one of them being B-Sweet Citrus. They have about 500 employees. They're at peak season right now, actually. Um, they lost 100 employees the next in, within a week because people were terrified of what was going to happen through the audits. And um, we've, you know, tried to set up a meeting with with the owner. Haven't been successful yet. And we did hear, uh, you know, and this, of course, is coming from employees, and we we don't know because we haven't had a conversation with him. He was trying to figure out how to extend the audit, um, get an extension to push it back to June. And so the reason he was doing that was not necessarily because he was trying to protect his workers, but because he was trying to get through his harvest season. So this, you know, I've, I've seen this type of thing happen, but I haven't seen anything, at least in the Valley, at least in Fresno County, that, I, that I've, you know, that has been public. Bruce? Yeah, I, I didn't answer that part of your question about sponsoring employees and, and trying to help uh, people. With the H-2A program now is looked at as an option by some growers in California, but in that program you have to provide housing. We don't have any housing. My brother and I have talked about that, whether we want to get into that. I do know a farmer up in uh, Calusa County who has had labor housing on his operation for a long time, and he is sponsoring some new employees. As far as the other issues, you know, we have not paid legal bills and things like that for our employees, but we do sponsor a local program through the RISE program where we have educational meetings where, and we're doing another one for female farm workers or the spouses of our workers too, and, and other farmers are participating too, but we've helped organize it, where it's basically an educational opportunity for them to look at all the resources that are is available to them here in this country when they have issues. And it's not just immigration issues, it's just family issues, it's economic issues. You know, it's basic educational things about finances and things like that that we've been trying to help them with. Santana? One of the uh, awesome things is when I was looking at UC Davis and the UC system is uh, the sustainability policy. 
so all the UCs uh, are part taking part of this uh, to be 20% of their purchasing power be spent uh, within the sustainability, what the qualifiers are for the sustainability foods. That would include what you, the two, what Letty and, and what Bruce just mentioned. <clears throat> it supports any farmer that has a program for its workers uh, regarding anything that you just mentioned right there. Um, there are 22 points to the sustainability policy for the UC system. Our personal goal here at UC Davis Health is going to be pushing 50% by the end of this year. Uh, so 20% by 2020, we're going to blow that out of the water just because we should, because we should take advantage of our geographic location. But those kind of programs, you need to make sure that everybody knows that you're participating and spending that money on your workers, your employees, so that people like myself can you know, know and, and you could fit that policy that I'm trying to follow within our own program, which I think is interesting that at least you have these things going on, but at least there's a state program that's actually supporting to try to say, okay, if you're doing this, we'll buy your product, right? And I, I had a question, I guess, hopefully this ties into that in terms of um, maybe outside forces that are uh, maybe helping uh, farmers and workers like Silicon Valley. I think I, Bruce, you had said in, a, in another uh, conference on this topic that you were at where you get a lot of Silicon Valley people coming in um, trying to you know help you grow better and we actually did have a, a, a food for thought discussion on this the future of farming where technology plays a big role robotics and and drones and um, and uh, sensors I was just curious how this does this tie into the uh, what's going on here now a lack of workers for whatever reasons is shaping how farming has grown and there's other outside groups, uh, uh, Silicon Valley or the government or funders or whoever who's like, okay, we see that things are changing. Let's help you change it um, in a way that works for everybody. Does that make sense? Who are these outside people that are coming to you and saying we want to help or get involved, if anybody? Yeah, people are coming to agriculture right now with all these solutions they have, these technology, information handling, data handling solutions for us. And it's almost comical to me. I've had probably five or six different groups from graduates of UC Davis to a graduate group at, at Stanford and, and various private, you know, startups coming. And basically they're saying, I've got this app that's going to run your farm. You know, and, and they want me to just jump right in. And, and it's, I mean, in the analysis of these different options, these software programs that are out there to manage our data is, it's overwhelming for us right now. And, and I have a, a son and a couple young employees and I'm just pushing that off on them because I, I can't handle it myself because there's just a little bit too much there. And I can think I can keep my farm straight in my head a little better. But anyway, there's people that think technology is going to solve all our problems, and, it, and it's not. It's going to help. There's certainly some technologies are great. We have a drone that we use once in a while, but the reality is it's kind of a toy right now. It's, sometimes it's useful, and there are useful things that drones can do in agriculture, and there's tremendous technology in our irrigation management, you know, with that you can mechanize and with your iPhone, you can control all your irrigation systems. That's really expensive to do that. And my tomatoes aren't really worth enough to do that for. And the water is really not expensive enough to make that work. 
even though it is expensive here in California, and you really, as a farmer, you still need to go out in your field. You cannot do it from your office. You know, we've joked for decades about the windshield farmers that just drive by their fields. Well, you know, the old saying is that the best fertilizer is a farmer's footprints in the field. So there's still some old school things that you have to do to go out and see what's going on in your fields. So yes, there is wonderful technology coming in, but we have to be selective and you have to be realistic. You can't get just so excited. Just because it's new doesn't mean it's gonna be better in every situation. Letty, did you have any? No? Okay, I thought you saw it. I thought I saw you raise the mic. Okay, how about the next audience question then? Hi. Um, my name is Anush Trajorian, and I um, have just kind of a loose affiliated coalition called Safe YOLO, which is uh, working on immigration issues in Yolo County. Um, so, Bruce, I wanted to ask you to what extent. Um, I mean, do you use any of the labor that comes to the migrant camps in Madison at all, or do you have neighbors who do? I don't think I have any employees living in the migrant camp in Madison. I have in the past. I may have one guy, he lived in the one in Winters for a long time. I'm not sure if he's still living there. That's a really tough situation for farm workers is fi finding housing because things are getting so expensive. We're just too close to the Bay Area and to Davis, and, and housing is a real challenge. Um, so is there, because one of the issues with the migrant camps is that the migrants can't stay there year-round, and so I was wondering if there's any interest um, of farmers to like be able for those migrant workers to actually stay there year-round. Would that be beneficial? Yeah, I, I, I'm aware of that. I don't know where they would go. You know, it's, it's crazy that they don't get to stay there year round. We pretty much use our labor force all year round. We have, you know, um, intentionally set up our crops. We do grow some grapes and these trees. One of the reasons we wanted them is so we could have some pruning and different work through the wintertime to keep people employed, especially people that do not have papers it's really tough if they don't have work for two or three months economically in the wintertime. And so I think it'd be very important to keep those open year round. I think there's, uh, for the most part, I mean, certainly the demand for labor does go down in the wintertime, but there's still quite a bit of demand. And then, uh, sorry, I have a few questions, but my last question for you is, do, are there farmers who you think would be interested in participating in a conference on immigration issues in Yolo County? I, I can't speak for other farmers necessarily, but we would certainly send somebody or be good, participate, yes. Okay, great. Um, and then Leti, I was wondering, um, Oh, shoot. <laughs> oh, I was wondering, is your organization uh, connected with PICO at all? Okay. And are you doing coalition work like across California? Right. And, and can you describe what PICO is, what it stands for? 
Right. So P Pico is a is an international actually now organization, um, also faith based, working on the same racial and economic justice throughout the entire nation. Um, it stands for People Improving Communities Through Organizing. So we're an, an organizing network. Uh, we have Pico California, which is statewide. I think we have a total of about of about 15 federations throughout the state. The closest one to you, I would assume, is SAC Act. Yes. Um, so yes, we, we, we do, and we do coalition work at the state level. So SB 54 was one of the, one of the uh, policies that we work together as a state. We have a few action days a year um, in, in, in the capital. And um, yeah, SAC Act runs our uh, ICE hotline, um, both in Sacramento and in Yolo County. Um, and I was also wondering, um, so is your organization specifically doing any outreach to farmers as employers to kind of connect, try to make those connections, try to uh, build sympathy in employers and try to get them um, advocating for their workers? So the last year has been, like, it really has been a, a year of reacting and, and defending, unfortunately, and this year we're much more focused on how are we being proactive and creating opportunities for folks. Because of the I-9 audits, we, we've created a kind of like a rough template of, uh, I think it's, we call it a plan of protection for our workers. So we are in the process of trying to schedule meetings with local farmers, um, local employers that have, uh, you know, undocumented workforce many times. And so that they can know, one, what they are responsible for and what they're not. So we have AB 450, which is um, meant to protect our workers and says when ICE comes and audits a, a distribution center, they can only go into the room where the I-9 audit, the I-9 archives are. And they don't have to have the rest of the employee information, right? They don't have to let ICE into any other part of their property of their farm without a, a warrant signed by a judge. And so we wanna make sure they know those rights and wanna make sure they know what they can do. So for us, what we're thinking about is, one, you can donate into a, a, our Fresno County Legal Defense Fund, which is meant to assist families in, in moments of deportations for, for folks who don't know. Um, it costs about $5,000 to fight a deportation case and you have to put $1,000 up front. Um, to hold the attorney, and so we want them to they, to have that option or to to create their own fund where if because of the I-9 audits or in any other situation, they're able to assist their employees, whether it's, you know, maybe it's a loan or maybe it's it's simply donating the money to the to the, to the labor that, that creates, you know, this opportunity for you. Um, we want to create some of that, those options for employers. We haven't yet had any conversations, but we want to learn from that. Great. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Next question, next question about the audience. Yeah, um, so this is a question, I think primarily for Bruce, um, follow, kind of following up on what you, you were mentioning earlier, which is, I guess, this idea that one alternative to mechanization to avoid labor shortages is like farm diversification and kind of like evening out the peaks and valleys in the labor pulse over the course of the year. And it sounds like you're already doing that. Is that something that you're seeing other growers in the community looking at too as a way to kind of handle certain or tightening um, labor availability in the state? I can't say that I know of anybody else specifically doing that. And, and the primary reason we're so diversified is not necessarily the labor issue, but just the economic issue of trying to not put all our eggs in one basket because we have some, you know, 
pretty much every year there's one crop that doesn't do very well. And if that's your only crop, you're in trouble. So that's why we did it, but we, we have kind of steered it a little bit to, to help our labor, keep our guys you know, employed through the winter time. Um, I don't know that I've, you know, it's, it's an important thing. At this point, it probably hasn't been the most important thing. You know, people don't realize most farmers are just trying to make a profit every year. They're just doing whatever they can to make sure it works every year because every year is different. So, but I, I don't know that that's the case. It's a motivating factor for too many farmers. It may be in the future. And Ashley, you know, that, that brought to mind uh, something where the 2016 election also brought into California a big deal, marijuana legalization. And I was reading how now farmers not only have to deal with, okay, a shortage of labor because of immigration issues, but also marijuana um, might be calling, you know, the growers might be calling, you know, the, relying on the same workforce. So, uh, Bruce, I'm wondering if you see that in, in winters, if it, if it is going as far down south to the Fresno Bakersfield area, how does, is marijuana growing uh, something where the labor shortage is coming into play? I, I think it will, and we're concerned about it. Uh, Yolo County has had a whole bunch of marijuana growth for a long time, and our poor ag commissioner now is basically just swamped. I think he's realistically spending 95% of his time on the cannabis issue. Um, and it's very problematic in my mind. I think it could be very disruptive if you permit a lot of legal grows in, a, in an area. Um, I think it could disrupt the labor quite a bit. I think it can disrupt the uh, the agriculture quite a bit. It can dis disrupt the real estate markets. You know, we want we want opportunities for young farmers to go out there and find land and and farm. And you have these 20 acre parcels going for these absolutely ridiculous amounts of money because they're good. They're going to allow a marijuana grow on it. And we have the same issues with with some tourism activities. I'm all for agritourism. My family does a little bit of that too, but I think we need to do it as true agritourism because there's people that are coming and calling themselves agritourism, but they're just putting a wedding venue out there and they're having nothing to do with agriculture, but they, they want another Napa Valley. And to me, that's the end of real food production once you start going down that road because it's really, really difficult to farm around a piece of ground that's got 150 people having a party there. Um, so it, it creates all kinds of problems, and I could go into that for a long time, but we won't, won't go there. But yeah, the cannabis issue is, is very troubling to me, and whether it's legal or not um, doesn't really matter, because I, literally in Yolo County, they think there's probably 800 grows already, and they've given out 46 permits for legal ones, and then they put a moratorium on it, and they just have no idea how to handle it at this point. Yeah, that's another topic of discussion we're going to revisit. I, I don't have much on this. I, I haven't seen it. I haven't paid attention to it. I, I do know that our many of our local city councils are doing whatever they can to prevent that from happening, at least in, in the San Joaquin Valley. So I have, a, I have a couple more questions. So last last call for audience questions if there's any. Um, so I have a question about the H2A uh, worker visas that that was referred to because we used to have the bracero program and i'll just a personal note about me my mom worked for the agricultural labor relations board uh, back in the 80s so she she was uh doing just you know farm and, and and grower disputes but she told me about the bracero program about 
for those of you who don't know, and correct me if I'm wrong, panelists, it was a, a program where workers could come in for seasonal work and then they could go back to Mexico or wherever they came from during the off season and it was um, an easier way for them to come in and, and work when needed, when the farmers needed them, and, it, it, and then the door just slammed shut. Now it seems like, from what I was reading, it's the H-2A worker program, which is not, it's got a lot of issues. So with no immigration reform currently in sight, is that enough to keep the ag industry on track? What would you, I, I, I guess, it, does that help? Uh, are there other things that the California legislature is doing to help uh, farmers, workers? I mean, what can the state do, if anything, at this point um, to help out in that area? Bruce. I don't know that I want any help from our legislator right now. They haven't been very helpful in the last few years for, for agriculture in California. But um, I think the Brucero program, and I was too young to really know what was going on at that point, but I think it was a good program. I would love to have some sort of guest worker program in here. I think everybody would benefit on both sides of the border. The H-2A program may be modified and may be made to work, and, and we're going to look at that going forward. Um, as labor will probably get tighter and tighter. But right now, I don't, I'm not sure what the California legislature could do because I, I think they've done more damage to the ag uh, labor force in the last couple of rounds than, they, than they've done good. What, are, what about our federal representatives? I mean, obviously there's a, you know, there's a lot of issues <laughs> that um, high profile Congress people in California are, are uh, being known for, but ag is not one of them. Are they... Are you? Are any organizations here working with them? Are they working for farmers, growers, ag, immigration in any way that you see? Letty, do you see anything on the federal level in terms of uh, federal representatives in the Central Valley coming? Not for immigration, no. I haven't seen anything done, um, at least in the Valley many times. Unfortunately, we have <laughs> congressmen that are not super helpful. I don't know if they're helpful on the agricultural front, um, but absolutely not for immigration. Next question. Yeah, it's a little bit off topic from immigration, but it's for Santana. As you're looking at um, kind of staying away from the commodities market to look at your food supply to, to, um, for, for UC Davis, do you think that you're going to shift more towards market farmers that maybe are um, owner operators that, that are probably making less than minimum wage when you consider their time because they're not paying themselves, right? Um, if, if you want that locally grown food and you can't guarantee that large farmers are going to be able to supply that. Well, just recently with the, the program over at uh, Golden One Center, you know, I was able to organize uh, how that works with direct distribution from farmers. I mean, we started off with 29 uh, different farmers, uh, you know, delivering. Uh, yes, there was a broadliner uh, or there is a broadliner there. And, uh, you know, when you look at Golden One Center and what the impact was and what everybody thought that that could do, uh, the reality of it was, was you know, it really comes down to 43 games, uh, 43 days out of the year. Uh, so that impact wasn't as large as what I think the community really thought. Going back to the farmers and, and, and saying, hey, this is what we need, that, that's a, a good thing. But the problem was is that it only exists for the basketball season, right? So what do you do in the summertime, right? So then that's when the bounty of this area is really just 
flourishing, right? You know, and so um, again, that goes to that why I went over to UC Davis. But the the point is, is that the forecasting is going to give the farmer enough information uh, to support what we need, you know, for our supply. And so as long as I do my homework, the impact, uh, that I'm hoping that say farmer like Bruce will have, you know, we'll be able to count on is that if we anchor the program with the 365 day operation, every other restaurant that doesn't have the volume to do what we are fortunate enough to do can jump on board. Now, now we create our own market. And that's the whole goal. And so to go back to the, the, the workers, the migrant side of things is what my family was all about and being able to go back to Mexico. Um, you know, I was born and I stayed here, um, but my, as I had mentioned, my uncle with his farm and the, the, as these programs have gone away uh, or changed or evolved, uh, that's kind of what's happened, as Bruce mentioned, that uh, legislation has maybe done more damage than good in our whole this whole effort, right? Uh, because the programs have changed for whatever political motive and what have you. But uh, if we don't have those migrant workers, and there's, you know, when it comes to the housing, everything that's going on, um, you know, the ICE situations, if if the farmer can actually produce what I need, how's he going to have it harvested, right? And I think that's that's that that real thing that's happening right now. So we don't have the farm, uh, the, the the family showing up to work. You know that uh, that lady's here. You know with her hotline dealing with it's like so. Eventually, what happens? The efforts of trying to go local really starts going. It's just going away because the you know, commodity. I have to open the doors. We have to serve patient meals. We are 627 bed hospital. Breakfast, lunch, dinner. You know, those meals, those have to happen no matter what. And uh, the dietitians and the nutritionists that I work with, you know, it's like at that point it doesn't matter. The doctors are like, we need to get the tomatoes on this sandwich for this diet, right? And so ultimately I get pushed between a rock and a hard spot. I have to make it happen no matter what. So do I want to get the tomatoes from Bruce? Yes. But if, if Bruce can't produce them, I go to commodity because I have to. And, and that's, that's what I'm trying to hopefully not to do with this forecasting is like be able to give that information to these guys so we can get that stuff in. If that makes sense. I want to follow up with that. And, and one of the comments you made about this, some of these smaller market farmers are not making any money. And, and it's, I see this as a real dilemma because we have a large number of very idealistic young people that want to get into agriculture now and want to have that five-acre urban garden and supply the restaurants or the local community or the, the 20 acres and do a CSA. And unfortunately, the reality of those kind of businesses is really, really harsh. And it's, it all sounds really good. And we want to encourage that, but we need to make it so those can be successful because too many of them are not. I have been to several food conferences where I heard Mark Bittman stand up and say, we all need to go back to being peasant farmers. And my comment is, okay, Mark, you first, because all of our ancestors were, we all ate local at one time, but our food system evolved. People wanted to eat a bigger variety. They just didn't want to eat potatoes all winters and pickled cabbage. And so 
we found somebody in Florida that could grow oranges really, really well, and they started shipping them all over the country. And that's a really good thing. So we, we have to, uh, I'm kind of going all over the place here, but it, it, local food is fantastic, but we don't grow pineapples here, we don't grow coffee here, and we all want those things. And so we should appreciate the places in the states, in the world, where they can grow things that we can't grow. And we can grow things here that nobody else can grow. So we shouldn't always say, uh, and, and by all means, if you can get it local, that's absolutely the best. But you aren't going to get a good fresh tomato here in the wintertime. My contention is you should eat canned tomatoes because they are absolutely local. And they were put in the can dead ripe within three hours probably after they were picked. But let's keep our, we need all these types of agriculture. We do need commodity agriculture. And people complain about those darn corn and soybean guys in the Midwest. Why don't they start growing vegetables? Well, there's a reason they don't. If they could make more money growing vegetables, they would do it. But that's all that works where they are. Climate, distance to markets, those sort of things, that's what works. Farmers don't just go out there and decide what to grow. The corporations don't tell them what to grow. Farmers grow what the consumers eat. If people quit buying anything with, you know, high fructose corn syrup, there won't be a processing plant in this country making this stuff anymore. And so, you know, our jobs as consumers and educators as leaders in the farm community is to educate the consumers to buy, you know, vote with their pocketbook, vote at the grocery store, that's where you should decide what kind of food you want. That's where you should decide what kind of agriculture you want in your community and your state. But it's not always going to be local. We need the, that variety. We all like to eat things from other countries. We love to eat, you know, foods from other places. And so I think that's okay, you know, because, and the other point I want to make is about uh, the scale of agriculture too, because sometimes big is bad, small is good. But if we're talking about sustainability, we're talking about carbon footprints, we're talking about easier on the environment. When you talk about economy of scale, a larger operation that's more efficient because they use their water more efficiently, they use their fuels more efficiently, they use their equipment more efficiently, those are good things. That stuff is being produced with a smaller carbon footprint. And there's plenty of examples about the one of them is that if you want to buy lamb in London, you would think it would come from the Scottish Highlands, but actually you can get lamb cheaper with a smaller carbon footprint from New Zealand on a boat. It seems crazy, and that's an extreme example, but there are situations like that. So we need to keep an open mind about what agriculture needs to look like, because we need all sizes and shapes. I think actually your your comment early in the discussion about how nobody really cares if you're farming the land next year or somebody else was what really made me ask that question about small market farmers because they are willing to work themselves to the bone for a couple of years and then they give up and somebody else comes and does it. And are they really getting paid enough for it to be sustainable? Or are you counting on all of those idealistic young people coming in and wanting to run this five acre farm that grows everything and sells it directly to a food program or a, or a restaurant? Well, there are here in Sacramento, which is great. Uh, Mr. Michael Bosworth, I was just talking about him. He's a farmer, a rancher, and he, has a, he started a distribution uh, company to get to those farmers and get to people like myself. 
Um, and so I already got him approved at the last two places. And uh, he happens to be a UC Davis graduate and alum. Uh, so he knows the area very, very well. And so the, the small farmer that, you know, maybe the distribution issue is uh, the, the challenge. He's that middle person that is helping get that product to, to our facility, which is great. So again, keeping it local and helping them. So again, bridge those gaps of numbers to make the number of 1,600 pounds of tomatoes, uh, whatever, you know, get to that number if it takes three farmers to do it, right? So it's kind of great that it exists here already. So I have one last question for all three of you, and uh, I guess it's what can we do? What can we do, the audience here, the people listening is, as uh, uh, food eaters, food lovers, in terms of what's going on in your neck of the woods or your neck of the valley, um, you know, immigration, DACA, ICE. It, it seems like there's some things that may be out of our hands, the state's hands, but maybe there's some things that we can do with our pocketbook. Um, so I wanted to start with Letty and, and go down the line and see what do you, what can we do? What would you recommend that we can do to help in this in this current time? Right. So I, I love what Bruce said about vote with your pocketbook. That's absolutely what we all need to be doing right now is um, we need to be supporting organizations. We need to be volunteering. We need to, like body ballot buck. Right. We got to we got to get out there. We got to volunteer where we can. We got to support organizations or coalitions that are existing that are supporting families, whether it be in your backyard or if you're going down to the valley on a weekend and know there's an event, get connected. Um, we really need everybody right now. Another really concrete way that you can help is the Legal Defense Fund. Uh, we've created a Fresno County Legal Defense Fund that's gonna have um, grants going out to people that apply for it, that can afford um, their, their to fight their deportation case. It may be you know, the, the full amount. You can sponsor somebody, whether it be $20 or $5,000 that you're putting in. There is a need, there is a lack in the Valley. Not only do people not have the money to pay for an immigration attorney, but there also aren't immigration attorneys. There's 40 throughout the valley, the entire valley of, of San Joaquin. Four zero. Four zero. 40 immigration attorneys there, just to give you a picture of, of what it looks like. And so there's, there's very few, if any, that are doing pro bono or low bono work. They're charging full amounts to families. Um, and so that's, you know, I think Vanessa can send that out, post it on the, post it on the Facebook and you can donate somewhere concretely that you know where it's exactly where it's going to go. If you want, you know, if you want to meet the family, you can definitely do that too, but you really could sponsor a family with, with your own pocketbook, or you could, you know, help fundraise with the people, you know, with your networks for, for a family in need. That's in, you know, in a situation where it's about life or death, it really isn't about anything else. Um, and, and, and if you're, you know, if you're in Sacramento, if you're wherever you are, you can support locally creating those. If you have, if you know farmers, if you, you know, maybe they just don't know, right? Like you can help have those conversations. You can help them think through ideas. You can reach out. Uh, we, we just, you know, it's about doing right now. You don't need more information. You have it all. And, and that's unfortunately something that we're stuck in right now is we want to know more and we, we want to read more and we want to meet and encounter, but we, we've just got to do. We really have got to do something about what's going on right now. Santana? It may, it may sound cliche, but um, really supporting your local farmer's market. Um, you know, those exist for a reason. 
uh, you know, so getting close to that uh, and uh, actually just, you know, getting educated yourself. So on any of these food festivals, a lot of them are going to be coming up. Um, you know, you've got asparagus, you got the honey festival, you got a strawberry festival, you got every festival for every kind of fruit and vegetable we have. <laughs> We're growing all kinds of stuff around here. So, but get educated on that too. Listen to what is being said and actually when you go to these festivals there's always these informational booths on what's going on with our agriculture that is sponsored by every one of these counties right get educated on your own and you know at the same time you know bring someone else with you you know listen to what's actually being said you know but uh, again i support that same uh, message that bruce was saying is like uh, you know you do vote with your pocketbook so where you spend those dollars really is it's going to impact our market uh, and so if everybody's doing that little bit, you know, that little bit that you do, that I do, that Letty does, you know, that we all do adds up to quite a bit. And I know it sounds cliche-ish, but that's really kind of where the demand really gets, meets the pavement right there is the dollar. Last word, Bruce. I think both of you said it really well. I, I, it, I mean, what you just said, Santana, is exactly my thoughts. You know, get yourself out there, educate yourself bring people along. I love the fact that there's such a huge resurgence in where people's food come from. I, you know, people just couldn't care less and didn't pay any attention 30 years ago. And so it's a wonderful thing that people, you know, urban populations are paying a lot more attention now and it's great, but there's a lot to be learned. You know, when you do go to the farmer's market, get to know those farmers, ask them questions, learn about what they're doing and what their life is like. And, and find out, go a little bit deeper than, you know, wh wh what crop are you going to bring me next week kind of thing and find out about it and just just try and, and, and dive in. And, and like he said, bring people with you, educate people. Um, we all think we, we know, understand what's going on, but we don't. We, you know, we all have a lot more to learn. I, I don't know enough about different aspects of agriculture. You know, you guys don't have a good idea of what it takes to run my farm. We don't have a good idea to what it takes to feed 7,500 people a day. You know, these are all really important things and, and uh, get out there and, and just being here, we know you're interested, so that's a great thing. You're, you're on your way, that's for sure. Yeah, I, I personally uh, am, was interested in this topic. I'm glad that you three could come up here and tell us more about what's going on. I think it's gonna be something we'll be hearing more about and experiencing more about down the road, so something we'll revisit. But for now, thank you very much for your time and your uh, conversation. Very much appreciated. Thank you. You've been listening to California Groundbreakers. Tonight's Food for Thought conversation was held on February 26, 2018 at the Clara Auditorium in Sacramento. Many thanks to our panelists, Santana Diaz, Bruce Rominger, and Letty Valencia for taking part in this discussion. Also, thanks to Bombay Palace and Roostaller Beer for providing the samosas, pakoras, and the beer. And of course, thanks to you for listening. Find out when our next event is by going to our website, californiagroundbreakers.org. <laughs>